This week on the Backtable Podcast. Actually, integration of palliative care early on in these situations is actually critically important, even for people that have advanced disease that are being treated with aggressive treatment. I think integration of palliative care is a good thing early on. I think multiple studies have actually demonstrated that by doing that, you can actually even improve survival for some patients. It's one, assessing where they're at in their disease. What are their goals of care? Because you know, a patient's goals of care may not necessarily be what your goals of care are. And I think also asking patients what their understanding of is of the current situation. I think a lot of times I'm very surprised by the answers that I get back, you know, even in people that have metastatic disease, when I ask, you know, what's your understanding of your situation? Some may think that the intentive therapy is to cure them of their disease or other sort of, you know, iterations like that. So I think getting a sense of understanding of the patient is really key. Welcome to this special episode of Backtable Urology. My name is Phil Parazio. I'm a professor of urology at the University of Pennsylvania, and I am joined by two very special guests today who are here to talk about kidney cancer. Dr. Rana McKay, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Absolutely. Raina McKay. I'm a GU medical oncologist at the University of California in San Diego. Pleasure to be here. Great. And Dr. Rakib Hanan, introduce yourself. Thank you for uh, inviting me. I'm Ricky Vanan. I'm a radiation oncologist at UT Southwestern Simmons Cancer Center in Dallas. Yeah, so the three of us are here today to talk about kidney cancer. And the special occasion is that the International Kidney Cancer Symposium is coming up actually in a couple months in Austin, Texas. And just by a little bit of brief background, the International Kidney Cancer Symposium is a meeting held each year by the Kidney Cancer Association. And it brings together kidney cancer experts, kidney cancer enthusiasts, survivors, kind of in a two-day academic setting where we talk about nothing but kidney cancer for two days. And I will say personally and honestly, it's one of my favorite meetings of the year. Yeah, I think one of the things I love is that there's cutting edge kidney cancer, high-level talks. There's also some really basic early fundamentals that are gone over with patients and trainees who are interested in the disease. And we get to network a ton and see the people who write the papers, who we follow their work. And for instance, Rakeeb, you and I, I think the first time we met was a couple of years ago. We'd known each other's work and all of a sudden we're, we're sitting there on stage or near stage together. And that's how we first met to go over these things. So why don't you share with us some of your experiences about the IKCS and, and what you think? Rakeeb, we'll start with you. Well, IKCS, uh, first time I Went to KCA back then was almost six, seven years ago. And then uh, I went there a few more times and, and gave a couple of talks and, and met great people like you. So, you know, I mean, IKCS has been um, a great experience overall. It's a great place to network, like you said, and good talks. And uh, also there's a lot of even patients attend as well. So it's, uh, it's a good place to be overall. Reina? Yeah, it's an absolutely spectacular meeting. I think it really integrates thought leaders from across the U.S. and abroad and also integrates trainees at all levels of their training from med students, residents, fellows. And, you know, I think my first oral presentation in front of an audience was at an IKCS meeting. And so I think it's really an, an awesome opportunity to network. I think, too, what's great about the meeting is we tackle a lot of issues where there really 
is no right answer in the field. And there's a lot of controversies in the field. And it's really kind of exciting to hear everybody's perspective. And then you can think of how to sort of integrate those thoughts into your day-to-day practice when you go back to clinic on Monday. Yeah, I think all great points. And I'm really excited about this year's agenda. Part of it is I was fortunate enough to be part of the planning committee. So uh, it was nice to kind of put this together and Definitely excited about seeing some of that. But what I really like about the agenda this year is it has its scientific content, but then it has some other content too. And for instance, there's going to be some wellness time. So there's going to be a planned kind of team run and yoga event for people who want to formally participate in kind of the wellness community at the meeting that will be there. There's also going to be a professional development workshop where senior members of the kidney cancer community are going to be available to talk with junior or developing members of the team so they can kind of figure out how they want to plan out, whether it's grants or trials or whatever it may be, how to further their career. So a couple of really exciting things in the non-scientific realm. And then in the scientific realm, we're going to be covering localized disease, metastatic disease, the genetics of kidney cancer, new clinical trials. There's a whole patient section that has to do with side effect management. So I think all really exciting things. Rakib, I didn't know if there's any sessions that you particularly look forward to. There's always debates and crossfires. So, you know, tell me if there's anything you're looking forward to. In general, the debates, of course, I'm definitely looking forward to. And uh, I think there's a very interesting case, but then there will be subsequent cases. Um, there is also a, a number of other sessions, including the, the keynote speaker. Yeah, all of it looks really like an exciting agenda to look forward to. Raina, anything you're... Uh shining about? You know, I have to say as a tribute to Chris Wood, I think this is going to be the first time kind of we're bringing back the wood fire case discussion and trying to do it in true Chris fashion. So I'm super excited about that as a a tribute to him and also thinking about the different cases that'll be discussed. Yeah. And for those listeners who who don't know, Chris Wood was a giant in the field of kidney cancer that we lost uh, two years ago now, I believe, and uh, way too soon. And he was a a consummate surgeon and mentor, loved his patients, loved developing young talent in the field, whether they were surgeons or oncologists. If they cared about kidney cancer, he cared about them and furthering their career. And he held these wonderful, they were called wood fire in in honor of him, but we would really roast but challenge surgeons, oncologists, radiation oncologists to make decisions and talk about really, really tough cases on the spot. And we learned a lot from him and we will certainly miss Chris, but his legacy will certainly live on. He was one of the founders of this meeting and his name will forever be associated with it. And then just to give the final details on the meeting, this year it is November 4th and 5th in Austin, Texas. If you're interested, you can find more information at the KCA website. It's kcameetings.org. And it's the IKCS meeting in North America, November 4th and 5th at the Hyatt Regency Austin in Austin, Texas, USA. So here we are now with the fun part of today's podcast. We're going to get to some cases and give the audience a little bit of a taste of something they could expect at the IKCS. But we're going to talk through some tough cases and try to give varying perspectives on how to manage some tough kidney cancer patients. And in the simplest form, we're going to start with localized disease and we'll start working our way up towards more advanced and metastatic disease. And I will tell you, these cases have been changed from reality to protect patients' identities, to protect anything. These are not real patients, but the stories certainly come from real patients and experiences that I've seen over the last several years. Dr. Hanan and Dr. McKay have not heard these patients yet, so we're really going to put them on the spot and work through some of these cases. 
So here is uh, the first one. And unfortunately, on a podcast, we can't show CT scans or any labs, but I'll talk you through the best I can when we're dealing with kidney tumors here. So we're going to start with a gentleman in his early 70s who's in relatively good health. He's got some BPH. He's got some hypertension, things you would expect in a 70-year-old man. Importantly, he only has one functional kidney. His left kidney, basically from childbirth, was always atrophic. So he's got a functionally solitary right kidney. And in that kidney, he's got a four-centimeter tumor that is certainly central and has some hilar components. It's a tough partial nephrectomy, but it is partialable, what we would call a high-risk partial nephrectomy, meaning the risk of losing the kidney is somewhere in the range of at least 20%. Interestingly, this gentleman, and we're going to skip over some of the early management, for a lot of social reasons, decides to go on surveillance does not want to have his kidney operated on, does not want to have any intervention at four centimeters, 4.0, we'll call it. He comes back a year later, and it is now five centimeters. So, Rakib, I'm going to go right to you. What are your thoughts now? Four to five centimeters, otherwise healthy patient. He's got a basically solitary kidney with a five centimeter mass. Yeah. So, as you know, with kidney tumors growing more than three centimeters, the risk of local regional spread and even distant metastasis starts to increase. And I would recommend intervention for this patient. He just has to decide between the options he has. Like you said, partial will be difficult. We have had experience doing stereotactic radiation for these patients. You mentioned a central lesion, so probably ablative techniques and with this size also probably would not be ideal. So those are the options to discuss with him. Yeah. And, and he's a little bit between a rock and a hard place, right? You know, once we get over four centimeters, the risk of metastatic disease starts slowly climbing from about 5% at four centimeters. When you get up to six or seven centimeters, it could rise as high as 20 or 25%. So we, we're starting to kind of get a little nervous about him. And Dr. McKay, before I get to you, unfortunately, this patient experienced another life event and could not undergo intervention, comes back a year later, and his tumor is now six centimeters. Stereotactic radiation certainly on the table. Partial nephrectomy has not come off the table. And to be honest with you, the risks really haven't changed. Between five and six centimeters, it's still a, it's still a complex tumor, still a high risk of bleeding that could require blood transfusion, still a high risk of losing the entire kidney if we did a partial nephrectomy. I think the approach to partial, just as the urologist on the line here, is really surgeon dependent. A good quality partial, whether it's done open or robot, is totally reasonable as long as it's done by, I think, a, a high quality experienced surgeon it is completely appropriate. I also agree with you, Dr. Hanan, that thermal ablation, probably not appropriate here. We know that above three centimeters, whether you're doing cryo or RFA, you're talking about multiple pokes or multiple probes, especially with a central or hilar tumor, you're going to leave some cancer behind and probably not a uh, ideal situation. Oh, that's one point I didn't bring up. I skipped ahead. So we don't know he has cancer. So I'll tell you, year five, he gets a biopsy and it was clear cell renal cell carcinoma, low grade on biopsy. So now we're at six centimeters. I don't think our, our conversation has changed much, Dr. Hanan, but does it affect your thoughts on stereotactic radiation? Does size play any role here? Size does not play a role, but it is, you mentioned it is a central tumor, which is endophytic and with its growth, there will be more and more normal kidney damage with radiation as well, because you know, no matter how much focused radiation we do, there will be a small amount of normal kidney that will be impacted by the radiation. And on an average, we see about six to seven ml to 10 mLs decline in the um, GFR, particularly with endophytic lesions. So 
I don't know what his current kidney function is, but with one kidney and the lesion growing, so even with stereotactic radiation, you will see some decline in his kidney function. The long-term control rates have not shown to be worse with larger tumors, so we will be able to put in sufficient dose to control the tumor, but again, kidney function decline over time is a, is a concern now. Yeah, it's an excellent point. And his GFR has always measured between 80 and 90. Part of the reason we think this was a congenitally affected kidney is because his kidney function is totally normal. And so we think that kidney has been doing the lion's share of his kidney function. He did have a MAG3 that demonstrated basically zero function from the contralateral kidney. So that's why we're worried about partial, because if we lose the kidney, he's basically dialysis dependent. So Dr. McKay, I'm going to get to you here. We don't usually love what we would call neoadjuvant systemic therapies prior to surgery, but tell us your experience and thoughts and uh, I'll give you mine. So I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to consider. We actually have a clinical trial here at uh, UCSD called the PADRES trial that's neoadjuvant exitinib given for a two-month period prior to nephrectomy. And it's actually specifically designed for people who may have a contraindication for a radical and have sort of an imperative need for a partial, if you will. So designed for people with bilateral tumors, unilateral kidney, chronic kidney disease. And so I don't necessarily think it's unreasonable to consider that approach to try to get as much cytoreduction prior to nephrectomy to basically save as many nephrons as possible. Now, this trial is being conducted with a single agent of a TKI alone. We know that response rates with single agent TKIs, you know, based off of resist criteria, meaning 30% shrinkage or more, is probably on the order of about 30 to 40%. In the best case scenario, you're telling me he's got a grade one clear cell RCC. I think if we really wanted to think about a maximized approach to think about what therapy can we give this individual that is associated with the highest response rate in the shortest period of time, that's where I think about the IO-VEGF combinations where they have response rates that are greater than 50%. So I think if we're really going to try to maximize benefit, it's not unrealistic to consider that approach, though it certainly is you know, not a standardized strategy when we think about toxicity of IO therapy and also toxicity of the VEGF inhibition. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and it's nice to hear that you have a trial open. You know, there's four, we call them prospective trials or prospective studies in, in that space. I think it's less than 100 patients if you add all of those trials up in the TKI setting. And what you see exactly as you described, about a 25% reduction in tumor volume in about 40% of those patients based on resist criteria. But you also see complication rates go up pretty high. And I think some of that speaks to the complexity of the tumors that went to the operating room. But you also see some, you know, you see common complications like blood transfusions, but you also see uncommon complications like chylosocieties and lymphatic leaks, which are problematic to deal with, but also a lot better than losing a kidney and potentially going on dialysis. So I think it's all risk reward, you know, kind of benefit in the setting. And I think the conversation is is couched very, very well here. So I'll ask each of you, and, and maybe you'll go with your preferences, but we've got this patient in front of us. You know, we basically, I think, laid out two really good options for him, which would be primary stereotactic radiation versus a trial of neoadjuvant therapy, probably tyrosine kinase inhibitor. I like exitinib as a choice based on some of the other trial data from MD Anderson, followed by partial nephrectomy. So give us just kind of your vote. And if you want to have any last words on this case, and we'll move on. Rakib? All right, I'll go first. And uh, I mean, aside from my bias. There could be another option, which is combining them. 
So the same way that a smaller tumor is easier for partial, it is also easier for stereotactic radiation, and we could get more nephron sparing that way as well. And I have done a few cases where the tumor was actually invading into the renal vein and new adjuvan TKIs were able to shrink it down before I went with stereotactic radiation. So that would actually be my preferred choice. Although neoadjuvant treatment followed by partial nephrectomy, that also is a good option. Dr. McKay? Yeah, I think if I had to put my vote in, I actually would do a combination, you know, even PEM-AXI, which is associated with higher response rates, if we really want to try to get that tumor to shrink as much as possible. If it's like six centimeters, we could shrink it to three centimeters. And then hopefully that can facilitate a very much, hopefully easier partial, though it's a centrally located tumor. And that would be probably my preference. So, you know, with this patient, I'll tell you what uh, what we ultimately ended up deciding was to do primary stereotactic radiation. And our radiation oncologists felt that they had a good capsule and kind of targetable area and that preoperative therapy wasn't necessarily going to help them with their stereotactic radiation field. And while we recognize that there certainly could be a local failure rate from colleagues who've done lots of stereotactic radiation our surgery does not become that much more challenging when you're already in the 99th percentile of difficulty. It can't get that much harder after stereotactic radiation. And uh, we know the kidneys will come back together again if they're going to come back together. So that was the decision we made on that patient and obviously long-term follow-up pending, but doing very well in the short term. Good. So we'll move on. And Rakib, we might skip you a little bit on this one, but uh, love your input if you have any. So Rana, here, here's an interesting one that comes up, I think, more and more commonly, especially now in the last year of practice. This is a young gentleman in his mid-40s. One episode of gross hematuria brings him to an emergency room, and he's diagnosed with a 13-centimeter cystic and solid mass in the right kidney. We're going to skip right ahead. He gets a radical nephrectomy. He's got a normal GFR. Kidney comes out within a few weeks. On the pathology reports, low-grade, grade 2, clear cell renal cell carcinoma with cystic changes T3A because of some hilar soft tissue invasion and segmental renal vein invasion, not main renal vein invasion. So I'm sure you're anticipating the question already, (laughs) but here we go. This is the big question we face with these patients. Tell us about the role uh, or your thoughts on adjuvant therapy now. We now have two positive trials in the space, at least for progression-free survival, a plethora of negative trials, including some recent ones released at ESMO. Give us your thoughts and how you talk to these patients and how low-grade T3A, segmental vein invasion, how any of that may play into your decision-making here. Yeah, so I think this is such a highly relevant case that we're encountering in the clinic on a daily basis now. And I think, you know, the first question to ask is what is the patient's risk? What is the patient's risk of recurrence? And there's lots of algorithms that are out there to help with risk stratification I think classically we think of AJCC staging, but there's other nomograms that are out there from the UCLA staging, Leibovitch criteria. I think in clinical practice, if I had to kind of guess, kind of gauge this individual's risk of recurrence, I'd put it right under 50%, probably in the 40% range, given that he's technically a T3, he does have T3 disease, but he's a grade two and he's a T3 because of you know, but sounds like perinephric fat invasion than anything else. So I think it's it's lower than the classically quoted kind of 50% for your T3s. So then I think the next question is, okay, for some individuals, 
depending on where they are with their comorbidities and everything. I mean, this guy's a young, healthy guy without any comorbidities. He's 40 years old. And honestly, because he's 40 years old, I would germline genetically test him, but that's an aside question. So, uh, you know, I think it's all about talking about risk reduction. So the best data that we have comes from S-TRAC. With S-TRAC, you know, the data for sunitinib is there's a DFS benefit, but there's zero signal for OS in a sea of negative data. I think in clinical practice, I can count the number of times on my hands I've given adjuvant sunitinib. And, you know, I'm not necessarily recommending that in this case. I think the more contemporary data comes from the Keno 564 study looking at adjuvant pembrolizumab in this setting. The trial was a positive trial. Actually, the bulk of the patients that were enrolled on the trial, though it allowed enrollment of T2 grade four lesions, were actually people that are, were in this situation, kind of more T3 disease. There was a very small number of people that enrolled that have N1 NED, very small number that were N1 nodal involvement patients, but the bulk of the patients were kind of T3 patients. That trial did demonstrate an improvement in DFS. And though it's still early with OS data, with about 30% of the events in, the hazard ratio is kind of holding steady at 0.52 with 30-month follow-up with regards to OS. So I think the data look good. From a tox standpoint, it was pretty well tolerated. Nothing unexpected that you would see. Very different than our experience with adjuvant TKIs where we actually saw greater toxicity than what we saw in the metastatic setting requiring dose reductions of therapy in the adjuvant setting. So I think I would have a long discussion around, you know, what you can hope to gain with adjuvant pembrolizumab. And ultimately, I think certainly the decision is in the hands of the patient. But I think, you know, there's plenty of data. I I think the negative trials that reported out at ESMO, I don't think it takes away from the positivity of the Keno 564 data. You know, I think the Emotion 010 study that was negative was atezolizumab. Atezolizumab doesn't even have an indication for people with metastatic disease. It's a different drug. It targets PDL1 instead of PD1. I think it's very hard to compare to the 914 data of Nevo Ipi. It was only six months of therapy. A lot of the Ipi dose was not given in the context of toxicity. Also, that trial enrolled lower risk patients, didn't enroll patients with M1 NED, and enrolled patients that had low grade T2 tumors. So, very different study. And then at Prosper, I wouldn't even put it on the same comparison here. That was a cooperative group study looking at a perioperative approach. And there was a lot of opportunities for patients to not actually receive therapy in the context of Prosper. So I I would not put that on the same level playing field. So I think, yeah, we'd have a long and hard discussion about do we give you adjuvant Pembro or not? Yeah. It's, you know, my conversation, I put it this way, my conversation has not changed about this topic with the Kino 564, but the tone in which I have that conversation has changed. And I've always kind of said to patients, you know, ultimately this is your decision. And if you want to be maximally aggressive, adjuvant therapy is the way to go. I think the Pembro trial makes it much more accessible to patients. I think the, you know, when we were talking about sunitinib, you're trading a year of toxicity for a year in disease-free survival delay, but no change in overall survival. And I think the future is much brighter kind of with the Pembro data and now as we're looking at multi-agent regimens in this setting. So yeah, those are kind of my quick thoughts. And, and Rakib, I'm going to put you on the spot and you know, kind of typical, we'll, we'll honor Chris Wood here. Yes or no, adjuvant therapy, what do, what's your vote? Well, I don't know. I actually have a lot of thoughts and maybe too much to say. But my take was uh, looking at keynote, we need to look at, at the end how, what percentage of patient fails. And, and if I remember correctly, it was about 30% or so patients failing. So that means at the end, the benefit is for 30% of the patients and you're giving the adjuvant treatment to 100% of the patients. 
and what percentage are having grade three or higher toxicity. I think that was also like 35 or 37%. So a very high rate of grade three or high, higher toxicity that you're giving to everyone for 70% of the patients that don't even need the therapy. So then to me, this is the perfect place to look for biomarkers and something like CTDNA to look for minimal residual disease that we cannot see in, in CT scans. You know, after you do surgery, you look at CTDNA and if it's undetectable, then that patient likely is not going to benefit. So this is an ideal place to look for biomarkers that can help us better select patients. Yeah, and that's my thoughts. Those are great thoughts. And this is, you know, what I love about the IKCS and this kind of prequel to that is these are the kind of conversations that come up and these are the important topics that get covered. So tell me, if put it this way, if you were this patient, would you get adjuvant therapy, Dr. Hanan? No, I would not get the adjuvant therapy, but I would go into very close surveillance to make sure things can be detected the earliest possible, other than if there was the biomarkers available. Dr. McKay? Yeah, I would. Yeah, so I tell you, I, I'm with Dr. Hanan. I actually, if this were me, I would probably not take adjuvant therapy. Oh, I say that now, but who knows? I mean, it's hard to say if this actually were you. This patient opted for adjuvant therapy, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. And, you know, I think we've had this dogma or this thought in kidney cancer systemic therapy that kind of the clock starts on survival once you start the therapy. And I think data like these are starting to make us question that and think about, can we have an impact in the new adjuvant and adjuvant setting? And, you know, I think the future is bright here. All right. Case number three, you ready for this fun one? Oh, yeah. Wonderful elderly woman who has an MI and in workup of the MI is diagnosed with a 10 centimeter renal mass with a huge paraaortic lymph node. 10 centimeter renal mass, 10 centimeter paraaortic lymph node. Gets stented and gets stented with a drug eluting stent. So is now on therapy, basically on dual antiplatelet therapy for a minimum of six months. And this is such a massive MI that is in full cardiac rehab. So inpatient rehab for her heart recovery. Being good doctors, they get a biopsy and the biopsy shows papillary renal cell carcinoma, not a clear cell renal cell. Chest CT negative, no evidence of metastatic disease other than the regional node. And it's the only regional node. It's massive though. So here we are. This is a challenging one. Dr. Hanan, give us your thoughts on this patient. And I would tell you, not a great surgical candidate, obviously, and basically not a surgical candidate for at least six months. So yes, definitely a tough case. And with the recent MI, like you said, not a surgical candidate overall. So with the 10-centimeter tumor in the primary kidney, we could offer stereotactic radiation. The node makes it more difficult because you now you have another 10-centimeter node and I, without even looking at the CT scan, I'm sure there's going to be a bowel nearby or up against it. That would make it difficult and challenging. So I would probably revert to Rana to see if systemic therapy can help us reduce the tumor and, and also, you know, whether she's going to met out during this time, because if there she does met out, then it would not make any sense to offer local therapy to just, you know, add on unnecessary toxicity. So that would be my approach. Again, if the node was not there, I would probably take on the challenge of also a lot depends on, on the scan and what is in the proximity of the tumor and the location and all of that. But otherwise, 
it is a difficult situation for us right now. Yeah. And does papillary renal cell change your thoughts or your approach with, with stereotactic radiation at all? No, it doesn't. In our experience, papillary renal responded just the same and our local control rates are just the same for papillary as it is with clear cell. All right, Dr. McKay, we've now got node positive papillary renal cell carcinoma. So honestly, just with the recent MI and the need for uh, dual antiplatelet agents, I, you know, it really draws, this raises a lot of red flags with regards to ability to be able to tolerate a VEGF inhibitor. There's actually contraindications around use for VEGF inhibitors in the context of people having an acute recent MI, like all of our clinical trials excluded patients who had a recent MI within a six-month period. And I think there's also a lot of, for example, with cabozantinib, you know, that's an agent that we're all, you know, potentially thinking about. Most of the clinical trials were conducted excluded patients who were actually on concurrent Plavix at the same time that they were on their uh, cabozantinib. So honestly, a part of me wants to just kind of watch her and see how she's going to do, let her recover. Let's see if she is going to blossom from the standpoint of metastatic disease or, you know, if she remains localized after a several month period while she's doing rehab, that also provides information about just her, the rapidity and pace of her disease. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's certainly a challenging case, but I think the first rule of medicine is do no harm. And I can't think of a scenario with either surgery, radiation, or or even systemic therapy. You know, honestly, the, the only thing that I was kind of going at was like, well, technically then IO, but I think everybody would kind of probably be a little bit hard pressed to kind of give this individual, you know, dual IO therapy. You know, I guess you could think about single agent, but the data aren't great for frontline and they're not great for actually non-clear cell RCC. The best data that we have of single agent VEGF inhibition in the frontline space comes from the Keynote 427 trial with single agent pembrolizumab. So that would be the only thing I would maybe think about or discuss with this individual. Yeah. So really, really intelligent patient, really intelligent family, and they balance everything and they decide to wait six months. And she's on surveillance. Six months later, disease has not changed at all. Mass is the same, node is the same, no chest metastases. She's now able to come off dual platelet therapy. She's out of rehab. She's not fully participating in ADLs, but she's much better than she was six months prior. So now here's the same discussion again. Dr. Hanan, I don't think it changes your thoughts on radiation oncology. And I will tell you, you don't have the imaging in front of you. The primary is totally amenable to radiation. The node is not. There's bowel draped all over the, small bowel draped all over the periodic node. Well, so I, yeah, you're absolutely right. My recommendation has not changed much other than, you know, I would ask you if, whether she's able to tolerate surgery, can you maybe remove the node and then we take out the primary kidney, kidney tumor with the radiation. That would be one thing. And whether now she has better ability to tolerate some of the systemic therapies. And if so, then we can think about consolidating with radiation. Dr. McKay, first line papillary renal cell. So I think, you know, if we're categorizing this individual, I mean, it's one thing if she's not a surgical candidate from a comorbidity quality performance status standpoint. It's another thing if she's not a surgical candidate from just volume of disease standpoint, because certainly patients who had locally advanced unresectable disease were included in all of the frontline trials. 
you know, all the front trials were largely done in patients that had clear cell histology. I think given the papillary nature of her disease, you know, we certainly have data from the PAPMET study that was conducted by Monty Powell of cabozantinib as a frontline agent over sunitinib in the context of people that have locally advanced unresectable papillary RCC. So single agent cabozantinib could potentially be considered. I think there's going to probably be a, you know, intrigue factor of potentially thinking about dual aid dual therapy with either nivolumab plus cabozantinib together. We don't necessarily have great level one evidence about that. There is phase two data of the combination and non-clear cell histology. I think the decision to add an IO to a cabo backbone if she was going to get a you know systemic therapy is up for debate. There's certainly more toxicity and side effects are higher, but she could potentially receive single agent cabozantinib. And, you know, from a surgery standpoint, it's certainly surgically surgically resectable. Given the big node and how it covers her renal hilum, uh, this is an open operation. This is not a, a robotic operation. And I do a ton of robotic surgery. This is just not the right choice for this this patient. You know, the, the big question is around the 90-day morbidity and mortality from surgery here. And it's significant. You know, I think you've, if you put it in technically in the calculators, you know, she comes up with somewhere between a six and 8% risk of 90 day mortality, which doesn't sound very high, but compared to most surgeries we do for kidney cancer, it's less than 1% 90 day mortality. So that's a several fold increase from our standard operation. And so one of the things we always do in this setting is engage palliative care. And I'm sure you guys have conversations with your palliative care teams. Because they're really good at, while we can offer an entree into those discussions, really good at help patients and families set goals of care and kind of what their, you know, what's their expectation here? 80 years old, serious heart disease, other comorbidities, you know, what do you, what do you want to get out of life? And is it worth rolling the dice on a surgery to try and get several, potentially several years out of this? Or is it better to kind of just let this be and, and let the disease declare itself? And that's a really hard conversation. And I don't know if any of you know any of you have thoughts on kind of how to have that conversation or how to engage your your teams. Well, if palliative care is on the table, because of course we always think about you know curative options, and uh, initially that's what I was thinking about that stereotactic radiation will ha- try to do local control of ninety percent. But if bowel is nearby, we can always reduce that dose, still do stereotactic radiation. It will not give you the 90% local control. It may give you 60% local control or 70% local control. And we make a balance between the bowel toxicity and the control rate and find an optimal balance. And at the end, we call it something like an aggressive palliative regimen. And that may be something because one, it will keep toxicity is minimal. It will be non-invasive. She will have good quality of life throughout with this. That may be a good balance for her. Dr. McKay? Yeah, I think actually integration of palliative care early on in these situations is actually critically important, even for people that have advanced disease that are being treated with aggressive treatment. I think integration of palliative care is a good thing early on. I think multiple studies have actually demonstrated that by doing that, you can actually even improve survival for some patients. I think when people are in this situation, Phil, I completely agree with you. It's one, assessing where they're at in their disease. What are their goals of care? Because you know, a patient's goals of care may not necessarily be what your goals of care are, and there needs to be complete alignment on those goals. You know, some people 
may choose a less is more approach. Other people want a more aggressive approach. So everybody's a little bit different. I think the goal is to help guide them into the best treatment, especially where there may not necessarily be great data. And I think also asking like, you know, I, it's asking patients what their understanding of is of the current situation. I think a lot of times I'm very surprised by the answers that I get back, you know, even in people that have metastatic disease, when I ask, you know, what's your understanding of your situation? Some may think that the intensive therapies to cure them of their disease or other sort of, you know, iterations like that. So I think getting a sense of understanding of the patient is really key. Yeah, that's huge. And, you know, some of the ways, sometimes I flip this conversation and ask patients, what are they, what are you most scared of? And is it dying of cancer or is it dying in the hospital, you know, after surgery? And sometimes it, that's really real. And that puts it into context for some people and, and can help them make a decision. And, you know, totally different patient, but I remember someone, you know, uh, quite a few years ago now who had a thrombus and was a really, really sick elderly gentleman, but it was having such bad hematuria that was in and out of the hospital on a weekly basis in clot retention, getting transfusions, had tried radiation, had tried embolization, had tried everything to stop this. And it was just refractory hematuria. And basically said, listen, I don't care if I die on the table. I can't keep living. This is not life. I can't keep living like this. And you know, it, it really comes down to kind of that individual conversation and individual discussions, and they can be a real, real, real challenge. So I'll just bring you up to speed on, on this patient and then ask some last questions before we get into our last case here. So ultimately, her and her family took two months to decide and decided that they wanted to go ahead with surgery, stage them again. Disease had not changed at all. Tumor came out papillary renal cell carcinoma with high volume sarcomatoid component. So obviously don't have long-term follow-up on this patient. This is metastatic sarcomatoid renal cell carcinoma in a papillary primary. You know, Dr. McKay, how does that change your, your approach to systemic therapy here or does it? You know, it's really interesting because you've given a time course over, gosh, how many months, like nine months, a year? with this sarcomatoid tumor that hasn't grown. So that I'm perplexed. So that's a good thing that she has not physically grown. I mean, I would basically monitor to see, right now I would definitely restage to see if the person has any evidence of metastatic disease. Honestly, I think a lot of times we're surprised there's little small lung nodules that we, you know, they're stable or minimally grown. I mean, I would be hunting for metastatic disease in this situation to because I think that's going to help drive the discussion around, do you move forward with systemic treatment or do you monitor or think about adjuvant therapy? You know, the data from Keynote are, are really for adjuvant clear cell RCC. We have no data on the role of adjuvant Pembro for, you know, this situation. And, and I would probably not give adjuvant Pembrolizumab if the patient did not have any evidence of metastatic disease. I'd probably watch them and to see if they did develop it and then think about you know, frontline treatment in that regard. Yeah. So obviously waiting long-term follow-up on this one, this may or may not be a real patient. So I will, uh, you know, uh, I'll fill you guys in when I see you in person. Any closing thoughts on, on that? Any final thoughts before we get to the, the last case here? No, none. Uh, I think it uh, sounds like she's, she did really well. We hope. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, I think it's not uncommon that we encounter these incredibly complex dynamic situations in the clinic where you're like, you know, it's just, uh, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> All right. So here is our last patient. This is a gentleman in his 50s who once again presents with several months of back pain, but he's a physical guy. He's got a physical job and thought it was just kind of related to that. And then shows up in the ER with gross hematuria. Scan him. 
eight centimeter renal mass in the left kidney and a spinal met to L5. Biopsied chromophobe renal cell carcinoma and a nodal conglomerate bigger than the primary. 12 to 15 centimeter nodal conglomerate along the periortic space, eight centimeter renal primary, not very challenging tumor, and the spinal met. So neurosurgery says does not need urgent stabilization or surgery. He's not in any pending kind of neurologic crises or issues. So I'm going to, I'll flip it to Rana first this time. So Dr. McKay, chromophobe renal cell carcinoma, metastatic, what's your first line approach here? And I'll tell you also the biopsy, anytime you see chromophobe, our first question is, is this really chromophobe renal cell carcinoma? So we reviewed, we had pathology reviewed, you know, once, once this was referred to us at, at Penn. So tell us what your thoughts are. So I will ask, is this oligometastatic disease? It sounds like there's a renal primary, there's nodal disease, con- conglomerate of nodes, and one solitary spinal net. Correct. No lung metastases. No lung metastases, no brain. If that's not to say all that we're dealing with, if that's what we're dealing with, and this is chromophobe, I would try to cut everything out. I mean, these patients don't respond well to systemic therapy. They don't do great in general. But if we can maximally remove the kidney, remove the nodal disease, radiate the spinal med if it's not going to be operated on, not with palliative dose radiation, but with intent to ablate the tumor and then monitor. Dr. Hanan? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that approach. For the spinal med, it really needs to be evaluated uh, with the MRI and see how much intracanal spread there is, extraosseous disease there is, how much the surgeons can do. And even if the surgeons excise, they often are not able to do what do you call an in-block resection, which is why we will come in with adjuvant or post-op stereotactic radiation. And like Dr. McKay said, it will be a curative intent radiation. So we will not be giving a palliative intent radiation. We'll give the full dose stereotactic radiation. If surgery is not possible, then we will go in also with stereotactic radiation, full dose, and give local controls, hopefully more than 90%. Yeah, and uh, that's kind of where this case ended up going. Stereotactic radiation to the spine. Everything was surgically resectable. And our thoughts, Dr. McKay, were very similar to yours. For this patient and actually the, the former patient with papillary renal cell, anytime we see non-clear cell where we don't have a lot of data, we tend to favor surgery up front, not understanding that surgery is unlikely to be curative but there are limited systemic options. We don't know the right systemic options. And with more histology and more data, it may help guide our management there. So when surgically resectable, we do favor, even in this metastatic setting, kind of cytoreductive and or consolidative surgery, however you want to term it in this setting. So they did give stereotactic radiation. It was roughly two weeks course. Dr. Hanan, I think that's probably similar to what you would have done. They asked us to take a week off and then we had him in the operating room the third week there. So surgery, radical nephrectomy, nodal resection, and interestingly, once again, chromophobe renal cell carcinoma with a high proportion of sarcomatoid renal cell cancer in there or sarcomatoid differentiation. So systemic options here, Dr. McKay? I mean, if the patient is fully resected and is NED right now, I don't think we have great data for adjuvant, for chromophobe, adjuvant IO, or even adjuvant TKI for that matter. I would just sit tight and watch the patient closely. Dr. Hernan, would you do any additional radiation here? Is there worth, you know, kind of sterilizing the field, giving any adjuvant radiation? 
No. Uh, so there is very old data for adjuvant radiation with conventional infraction treatments back in the 80s that actually did more harm than good because the surgical bed was uh, had bowels. So even now with the newer technology, I would not recommend that unless there is a local recurrence. And once there is, yes, we will. And I have actually treated a number of local recurrences in the surgical bed with stereoactive radiation, but adjuvant treatment, I will not recommend. So make the story a little bit more interesting. You know, it's kind of felt that the spinal met may not have been completely treated. And so our oncology team was concerned and actually started him on levatinib. And interestingly, right before starting of systemic therapy, he was scanned, no evidence of metastatic disease, had a small contained lymphocele in the surgical bed, which we thought was totally fine, just kind of leave it alone, not something big enough to be drained, not causing any systemic symptoms. Started levatinib and with a week developed florid chylocytes, oh. which I had never seen before in kind of the management of metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Uh, wondering if any of you have kind of seen this in any of your treatments of the retroperitoneum or with any other agents. I have not. I have not. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, we talked about exitinib in the beginning of this, you know, that was reported in the MD Anderson trials, I think at least two cases of chylocytes following resection on exitinib. And so that was a new one for us. And obviously with this pathology, we're also worried about peritoneal carcinomatosis. And, and maybe this isn't chylocytes. Maybe this is just a metastatic effusion that, you know, is kind of demonstrating as chylocytes, but obviously another very challenging case that we've experienced in the last well, time, we'll say. So did you test the ascites for malignant cells? It did not have malignant cells in the ascites that we could detect, but did, it was triglyceride rich. So we put them on kind of our standard chylocytes uh, paradigm and has done, has done well and is actually starting back up on levatinib. Really interesting case. <laughs> challenging case, challenging case. Yeah, these things happen. So I want to thank you guys for your time. This was really a lot of fun chatting with you, getting your insights. I really look forward to seeing you guys in the next couple months in November in Austin. I'd say if you have any final words, anything you want to talk about, uh, Dr. Hanan. It was really great chatting with all of you. Thanks for inviting me here. And also in the, at the IKCS, I really look forward to our meeting. Dr. McKay. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much for having us. It's really been a pleasure being here and can't wait for the IKCS meeting. Can't wait to be in Austin and for the run. It's going to be a lot of fun getting everybody together. And so um, really great to see everybody in person. So thanks for listening to this special episode of the Backtable Urology Podcast. If you are interested in listening to other episodes in this series or any of the Backtable series, please go to backtable.com and check out the library of podcasts for you and your colleagues. Have a wonderful evening and thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vidavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.